Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. So we're gonna be changing things up just a little bit. So what we're going to be doing is we're gonna drop our verse of the day just for the time being. It may come back, it may not come back. So for right now, what we're going to be focusing on is our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So with that being said, we we got about five days worth of material that we need to cover. And in order for you to be prepared for the material that we're going to be covering, here's what you need to have read over the past five days. And that includes today, which by the way is July the 22nd. So what you need to have read over that period of time, starting with July the 18th, is you need to have read 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 12 through 32, then 1 Chronicles chapter 27 in its entirety, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and going all the way through, Chapter 25, then you need to have read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, Psalm 14, 1 through 7, and then Proverbs 19, chapter, uh, Proverbs 19, verse 17. So now we're going to move on to what you should have read on the 19th. So what you should have read on July the 19th. Is First Chronicles, uh, chapters twenty-eight and twenty-nine. You should have read Romans chapter five, verses six to twenty-one, Psalm fifteen, one through five, and Proverbs nineteen, verses eighteen and nineteen. So that's the nineteenth. So you should have read on the twentieth of July. Is Second Chronicles, chapters one through three, Romans chapter six, Psalm sixteen one through eleven, Proverbs nineteen twenty through twenty one. So that's what you should have read on July the twentieth. So what you should have read on July the twenty first. Is Second Chronicles chapter four, Second Chronicles chapter five, and Second Chronicles chapter six, verses one through eleven. You should have also read Romans chapter seven, verses one through thirteen, Psalm seventeen, one through fifteen, and Proverbs nineteen twenty-two through twenty-three. So that's the 21st, so then we should have read for today, which is July the 22nd, 
is you should have read Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 12 through 42, Second Chronicles chapter 7, and then Second Chronicles chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through 8, verse 8, Psalm 18, 1 through 15, and Proverbs 19, 24 through 25. So that's what you should have read to be prepared for what we're going to be discussing for today. So bear in mind, we're on day 199 now of Through the Bible in One Year. That's day 199. So we're going to be picking up on day 199 in Acts chapter 8. So we'll be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be on verse 1b through verse 8. So what we're going to be seeing in these seven verses is we're going to see the persecution of the early church be ramped up. The leader of this persecution was a man by the name of Saul, who will later become, who will later be called Paul, after his spiritual conversion to faith in Christ. So the persecution that we're going to see was concentrated and it was severe. We're going to see that men and women were put in prison and they were beaten. We're going to see that many were put to death. But what we're also going to see is that God used this persecution to start the great missionary work of the church. So by God's design, this difficult time was the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' great commission, which was his direct command to take his message to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we will see, this persecution brought out greater boldness in Christ's followers as they preached the word wherever they went. So now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1b, which is the second half of verse 1. And we're going to go through verse 3. For right now, which says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So what we'll see here is that these verses transition us from the defense of Stephen to the ministry of Philip who's going to be the next person that we're going to be talking about, who was another one of the seven that the apostles appointed to help them serve the Hellenistic widows that were living in Jerusalem. 
to understand that, right? So this is serving as a transition. So this transition describes the outcome of three characters. So it describes the outcome of the church. It describes the outcome of Stephen. And it describes the outcome to who would later be called Paul, and that's the name that we all know him by now. So what we see is that the church in Jerusalem was scattered by the persecution, and then we see that Stephen was buried with a loud lamentation, and Saul went on a persecution campaign that must have been out Inside the city of Jerusalem, because you see, the church was scattered. The only people left in Jerusalem were the apostles, right? So, this persecution campaign that Paul goes on must have occurred outside the church. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense for is to be happening the way it is described as happening. So now we're going to pick up in verse 4, and we're going to go through verse 8, which says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, and saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said, for with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So what we can see here that though facing persecution, the church still proclaimed the gospel. So while their opponents meant evil, right? So the opponents of the early church meant evil. God used the opponents' plans to move the gospel out of Jerusalem and into Judea. And so what we see here is that Luke is highlighting a man by the name of Philip. So we need to understand, like I already said, this man that we call Philip. This man who is known as Philip. He is not the Apostle Philip, right, that we see being described in the, um, we saw in the, um, Gospels, right? This man, Philip, was one of the seven, and he was one of those scattered, and he also was one of those preaching the Gospels. And so we also see that signs were associated with Philip's evangelism, like Stephen's evangelism. So we see that there were signs associated with Philip, and we see that there are signs, the same signs that were associated with Stephen were associated with them. The result was a great joy. Right, so we see this great joy that is happening. So now we're going to move in to Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. So 
once again, we're going to be moving into now Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. So as we go through this section together, we all need to take careful notice of the sequence of events in this record of the outpouring of the Spirit on the Samaritan Christians. So here's how the secret of events goes, right? So we see, as we saw, what we saw in the previous session, we saw that Philip preached a message about Christ, and that God confirmed this message with powerful miracles. So that's what we saw when we talked about the previous section, right? So now what we're going to see is we're going to see that many Samaritans end up receiving God's word. It's in verse 14 of today's passage. We're going to see that many Samaritans end up believing in Jesus. It's just going to be in verse 12 of today's passage. And we're also going to see that they were healed and they were set free from evil spirits, which we saw in yesterday's passage, which would be verse 7. And then in today's passage, we're going to see that they were baptized in water, which is going to be in verses 12 through 13. So what we see here that in these ways that we just said, so they received God's word, they believed in Jesus, they were healed and they were set free from evil spirits, they were baptized in water. So, so in these ways, those ways that we just said, they experienced spiritual salvation, which is the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit, and is ultimately the power of God's kingdom. What we also need to notice, right, is that the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, right? had been baptized in the Spirit, right? So, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon any of them yet since accepting Christ and being baptism, I mean, excuse me, being baptized in water as a testimony to their decision to follow Christ. So that's in verse 16 of today, of the passage we're going to be covering this current passage that we're in, right? We haven't read yet. So what we also see is that after a while, Peter and John came to Samaria and prayed that the Samaritans might receive the Spirit, which we're going to see in verses 14 and 15 of this current passage. We're also going to see there was a definite period of time between their spiritual salvation, which, by the way, came by faith in Christ and nothing else. Uh, and we're going to say there was a definite period, so there was a definite period of time for their spiritual salvation, and they're receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that in verses 16 and 17. And so the way that the Samaritans received the Spirit followed this exact same pattern that we saw of Jesus' disciples receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 
which we saw at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And so, what we also need to, what we're also going to see here, that some external signs and expression must have been evident when they received the Spirit, and the most likely of those signs and evidence that we don't see recorded here was they were probably speaking in tongues, and they were probably prophesying. So now we kind of understand the sequence of events that's going to happen. Let's start in verse 9 and go through verse 13 of Acts chapter 8, which says this. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is richly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So we're seeing that Simon the sorcerer, right, who was really what this particular passage is all about, right? So, Philip, in the previous section, had gone to a city in Samaria, preached the gospel, and the people had come to believe him. Now this has had such a great effect that a man who was a sorcerer, a man who was practicing magical arts, we don't know what kind of magical arts they were, right, but we do know that he had been claiming to embody the power of God, and that he had garnered a long-standing audience, because he had basically wound this group of gullible people with his magic arts, which is really what sorcery is. It's all about magical arts. So we don't know if he was just doing sleight-of-hand tricks, or if he was actually engaged in demonic activity. Either way, he was either one of them, right? Either one of them, right? Whether doing sleight of hand tricks or being engaged in demonic activity did not represent the truth, and neither one of these activities, whether they were the sleight of hand tricks or they were the actual demonic activities, Right? <clears throat> could resist the real power of God. So what we see at the end of this section that we just read is we see that Simon has come to be a believer and he was baptized. But, but as we are going to see, he probably had no more than a superficial attachment to Christ. In other words, this was only this wasn't even skin deep, right? This was just designed to make him look good to all of the people 
who had decided they were going to put their faith and trust in Christ. And so now he's going to do it because that seems to now be the in thing for all of these people to do. You follow what I'm saying? Right? So Simon only becomes a believer because it keeps up appearances. He doesn't, he's not really a true believer just yet. Right? <coughs> So what we see is that he still had this fixation on miraculous signs, signal of things yet to come, right? So what we see is that when the, when the apostles, what we're going to see is that when the apostles heard, right, that this has happened, yeah, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard what had happened over in Samaria, right, they heard that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God and had become fellow believers, right? They sent Peter and John, they sent essentially their two leaders over to Samaria to see what was going on. And what we're going to see is that when they arrived, they prayed, right? that they pray for these new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Why did they have to do this? Well, because they hadn't, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, because they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? Uh, and so then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So what I essentially just read to you and described to you and what is happening in verses 14 through 17 of Acts chapter 8. So what what you should note there is that the Samaritans believed in the gospel, right? right so what we hear, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit, right? So that's what we see at the very beginning. In that verse, it says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Right? And so when they arrived, they prayed. That's what they did when they first arrived. They prayed. But what did they pray for? They prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Right? So what does that tell us? It tells us that these new believers received the Holy Spirit only after the apostles Peter and John prayed for them. So I know what you're going to think. What well, doesn't the Holy Spirit come to live inside of us the very minute that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Yes, He normally does. But, but what we are seeing here is a unique moment in salvation history, right? Because what we're seeing here is that the reception of the Holy Spirit, that the prayer of the apostles is authoritatively demonstrating that the Samaritan people were fully included in the people of God by faith just as the Jewish 
people were. So now let's pick up in verse 18 and go through verse 25, which says this. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no, p- you have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in, your, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And they had, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what we need to understand what has happened here, right? So what's happened here? Simon makes this incredibly self-serving request. And he makes this request in an attempt to regain the position that he once held as a great sorcerer. Like, so he thinks, hey, 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 y'all, y'all laid your hands on these people. And when you laid your hands on these people, they received the Holy Spirit. And I want that same power, not so that I can give people the Holy Spirit, but so that I can be considered what I once was, which was a great sorcerer, someone that dabbled in magical arts, somebody who could lay their hands on somebody and a mysterious thing happened to them. People are going to flock from all around the sea, and people are going to pay me money for that. I'm going to make a living off of this kind of thing, right? That's what Simon is thinking here. That's why he offered the apostles money so that they could give him something that money can't buy, that money ain't supposed to buy, and that money can never buy, that can only be imparted to you by the power of God. And so the apostles soundly rejected Simon's offer money for something that even if they paid, even if he paid them hundreds and thousands of dollars, they could not have given it to him in the first place. But much more than that, right? Much more than that, his request revealed his lost condition. As you see, when he requested, hey, give me this power for money, because this was all about money to him. This was all about getting his power. This was all about gaining his prestige back. It wasn't about building up the kingdom of God. It wasn't about bringing people into the kingdom of God. It was all about building up the kingdom of Simon, the quote-unquote sorcerer who could do magical acts, who could impress everybody that he saw out on the street through his 
acts of magic. But what we can see here, right, what we can see here is we see that Peter gave him some really great advice. What does Peter tell him? Right? Peter tells him, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this weakness. Excuse me, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord of the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For that, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And so what does Peter give him? What's this sound advice that Peter gives him? Peter advises him to repent and ask God for forgiveness. And so how does Simon then respond to this sound advice Peter has just given to Peter? Telling him, hey, 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 may your money die with you. Because you thought you could buy a gift from God. You, you ain't got no part in this ministry that we've got going on here, right? Because your heart ain't right with God. And he tells him to repent of everything he's done. Repent of this wickedness that you've just done. And pray to God so that he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. So how does Simon respond to that? What is Simon's response to Peter telling them all this stuff? Here's what Simon's response was. Simon's response was, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So Simon's response was, was made more out of, was made out of even true repentance or fear of judgment. So we're not told, we can't know for certain which one it was, right? But the very fact that he says, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me, points that this is true repentance. Simon came to realize, hold up, this ain't supposed to be about building up my kingdom. The change I had was only on the outside, was only skin deep. It didn't go all the way to the inside. I gotta have a change on the inside for me to be able to do what they are doing. Right? So I gotta have a change on the inside. So we can't know for certain what, whether or not it was true repentance or fear of judgment. But more than likely it was true repentance. And so what we see here, this story then concludes, the story in this section concludes that the apostles then were turning to Jerusalem, right? And so that's where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, where we're going to see God's providence and his direction as being major themes in this now continued story about Philip, who, by the way, moved at the direction of an angel and the direction of the Spirit of God. So what we'll see here is what we're going to see that this angel commanded Philip to get up and to go. And where does he command him to get up and to go? He commands him to get up and go to the old city of Gaza, so which, by the way, in case you're wondering where that is, 
It is a city in southwest Israel, right? Right. So he told him to go to the old Gaza, which is a city in southwest Israel, rather than the rather than a new settlement by uh, with the same name. So what you need to understand, the old Gaza, right? The city in southwest Israel, is sometimes known as Desert Gaza. So we've got to understand that, right? So now we're going to pick up in verse 26, and we're going through verse 28, which says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kendake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So what, what do we see here? What's going on here? Right? So we see an Ethiopian eunuch who was returning from Jerusalem. So what's this Ethiopia that we're talking about is it a modern day Ethiopia? It, not really. Not really. So Ethiopia, or as it was called in the Old Testament, Cush. So the kingdom of Cush, right, be the way it would be described in the Old Testament, roughly corresponds, keyword is roughly, to the modern area of southern Egypt and northern Sudan. So it's a little bit more inland than modern Ethiopia. It's not quite modern Ethiopia. It might contain a little bit of what we would see be modern Ethiopia, but not a whole lot. So this eunuch was a court official who was in charge of keeping the treasury in order. So. Now let's talk a little bit. So he was on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the treasurer of Ethiopia was on the road to a place whose name means treasure. This fact was not lost on Luke because you see the Ethiopian who was in charge of the treasure of his government, in charge of the treasury of his government, in charge of the money of his government, found real treasure on the road to Gaza. So now let's talk a little bit about this chariot he was riding in. Right, so this chariot that he was riding in was not the war chariot that is familiar to those of us in today's time. Those of us reading this in the modern area, modern era, this would have been more like a this would have been a traveling chariot, right? Which would have been very similar to a covered wagon, something that a man of his status could ride in very, very comfortably. And so what we notice is that this man, this Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the book of Isaiah. So now let's deal a little bit with what a eunuch was, right? Because we've dealt with Gaza, right? We dealt with location. 
We've dealt with the fact that this man was a treasurer. We've dealt with the fact that he was riding in something that was very similar to a covered wagon, not a war chariot. So now let's deal with what a eunuch was in those days. So in ancient time, which is what we are dealing with when we're talking about this, right? A eunuch was a castrated man. In other words, a man who had been emasculated. A man who had had the very symbol of who he was removed. And they were usually a slave who was used to watch over a harem, which makes sense, right? You take off the part that makes a man a man if you wanted him to look after somebody else's wives, right? Or a treasurer. Watch over a harem or a treasurer. However, that's the key word here. However, the practice of a eunuch serving as a treasurer had become so common that frequently the title eunuch was used even for treasurers who were not physically eunuchs. In other words, the title was still used even for those who had not had their manhood removed. So it may be that the term, the term eunuch here simply denotes his high position in the Queen of Ethiopia's administration. Keep that in mind. Regardless of whether or not he was actually a physical eunuch, or he just had the title of eunuch, right? He obviously comes to believe in the God of Israel because he, or excuse me, he has obviously come to believe in the God of Israel because he was retiring home. He was going home after he had been to Jerusalem to worship. And you would only go to Jerusalem to worship if you were a follower and a believer of God. So now let's pick up in verse 29 and take it through verse 38 which says the spirit told Philip go to that chariot and stay near it then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet do you understand what you are reading Philip asked how can I he said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice, Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to the cha- to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. 
and Philip baptized him. So what's going on here? What's happening in this passage? Right, so Philip, following the prompt, prompting of the Spirit, ran to the chariot in time to hear the, this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, reading from Isaiah 53, 7-8. So this providential moment provided the opportunity to discuss the contents of the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch had been reading from. So this eunuch then asked the primary question regarding the suffering and substitutionary figure that we find described in Isaiah 53. So who is this prophet? Whom is the prophet talking about? We see that Philip then preaches Jesus to the man. Like he starts with that passage and he walks him through everything that he needs to know. Right? And you look at me and says, Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. He started with that passage and explained to this man everything that had happened. Right, explaining how Jesus is the one that fulfilled every prophecy that was made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. That's how Philip won this man over. And then after that, he baptized him. Right? So, so that brings us to the big question for today, right? That brings us to the big question that we should all be answering ourselves about this section. And that is, what is, what is we can take away from the, uh, what can we take away from this account of Philip and the Ethiopian official? And so this is what you need to take away. We are to pray regularly for God to bring people across our paths with whom we can share the love of God in Jesus Christ. So there are individuals out there whom the Spirit has prepared in that way. And like the Ethiopian man, they are asking themselves, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And as followers of Christ, we are to know the scriptures so that we are prepared to help those who are unbelievers properly understand and respond to the gospel message, as well as to help fellow believers grow in their faith. And so here's how this section ends in verses 39 and 40. It says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azeritus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So what we see is that Philip's movement from the Gaza road to Astios appears to have been supernatural. But you see, Philip had already, Philip had fulfilled the mission God had given him on that road to Gaza, right? And so we need to understand that Ostios was the Ashdod of the Old Testament, which means it was one of the five Philistine cities on the southern coast of the Holy Land. One of the five cities that was home with the people who would be a thorn in Israel's side, who would lead them astray over and over and over again. And so Philip went there to preach the gospel also. And so from there, Philip continued north, preaching the gospel until he reached Caesarea. So how are we going to end this discussion about something that really doesn't make any sense why it's included in here. 
So I'm going to I'm going to conclude it with a quote from Dr. Tony Evans notes on this passage. Here's what it says: The account of the Ethiopian official is significant. First, it acknowledges the existence of a royal kingdom of dark-skinned people in the first century A.D. Second, it records the continuation of Christianity in Africa after having been initiated to the first African Jewish proselytes who were converts at Pentecost. Third, it verifies God's providence in Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10 about followers of God coming from Cush, that is Ethiopia. God calls to himself people from the African continent to serve him in fellowship with all humanity. So what we need to understand is this was included. This was included. Luke included this for a reason. He included it to show people that God's kingdom is made up of everybody. Of people from all over the world. People of every race, and every color, of every creed. If they come to him and they accept his free gift, they are included in his kingdom. And that is why this is included in the book of Acts. And so now let's move on to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, 1 through 19a, to be more specific. So what we're going to see here is we're going to see, right, the story of Saul slash Paul, right? So what we have seen up to this point in time is that Saul slash Paul had been well known for his hatred and persecuting acts against Christians. So we will see that verses 3 through 9 are going to record Paul's conversion to faith in Christ, which took place outside the city of Damascus. And so it seems clear that his conversion occurs here. It occurs outside the city of Damascus, rather than later at Judas's house because of the following facts. Number one, he obeys Christ's instruction, commits himself to be a servant and witness of Christ's message, and a missionary to people beyond the Jews and turns his heart totally to prayer. That's fact number one. Fact number two, he is called Brother Saul, by Ananias. Ananias already assumed that Paul is a believer and who has experienced a new birth and that he is committed to Christ and to God's mission. So the only thing that Paul needed to be baptized, the only things Paul needed was to be baptized, have his sight restored, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, all of which Ananias did for him, right? As you see, Paul had already had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, which is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this passage. 
So now let's pick up in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So what we see here is that Saul's zeal was undeniable. And it was expressed as, as murderous threats. I mean, we, we read that he even went so far as to visit the high priest Caiaphas, the same man who had been instrumental in having Jesus put to death to get authority to act with impunity on these murderous threats that he had been making. And so what we're going to see later on as we get through this is that according to Acts chapter 26, verses 10 and 11, Saul started off locking up Christians in Jerusalem. And so what that tells us is that Saul's persecution was not merely targeting Damascus. He wasn't just targeting one city, he was scouring the countryside for victims from Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of this new Christian movement, all the way up to Damascus. And so what we see here, we see here, we see this first reference here in this passage, right, to Christianity being referred to as the way, right? And so this designation likely comes from the Old Testament, from Old Testament precedents, rather than Jesus' words that we find recorded in John 14, verse 6. And so, <coughs> we're also going to see that, uh, we'll also see later on in Acts, let's that be uh, chapter 11, verse 26, that when Barnabas and Saul later spent time preaching in Antioch, believers then to be begin to be called Christians. So now let's turn our attention to the actual conversion experience of Saul. Right? So the flashing light that we see described here is reminiscent of lightning. So its origin in is heavenly. And the double address that Jesus uses to address Saul, so when he says Saul, Saul, it was often used in intimacy or it was used in urgency. So we can rule out intimacy given Paul's intention against Christians, which then makes urgency make more sense. Jesus was speaking here to Saul slash Paul urgently. He was urgently. He knew that Paul had a zeal for things. And he knew that that zeal 
people do good things for his kingdom. And so he was done waiting around for Paul, or excuse me, for Saul, to come to the right conclusion. So he helps him along with the matter. Right? So the voice that we see here, right, interrupted Paul's, Saul's intentions against, excuse me, interpreted his intentions against Christians to be a personal attack. Right? Jesus considered this to be a personal attack against him, even though Saul was not personally attacking him, he was personally attacking his sheep, he was personally attacking his followers, and if you will recall from when we went through the Gospel of John, that Jesus was very, very protective of those that are his Sheep, which is how Jesus described his own followers. <coughs> so, what we need, so what we see here is that Saul then undresses Jesus as Lord, which essentially falls short of understanding who was speaking here, right? So the term really indicates nothing more than polite submission. It's not in all caps, so he didn't say Yahweh. He said, Lord, as in Master. That is what he was saying here. So later, right, later Paul would discover that the reason for Jesus was the one who had confronted him on the road to Damascus. But this submission, this polite submission was all it took for the change to take place, for there to be a change in Paul, in Saul's heart that would be conversion moment, where he went from hating the kingdom of God and plotting to destroy the kingdom of God to fighting for the kingdom of God. Right. So now let's pick up in verses 7 through 9, which says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and did not eat or drink anything. So the men who were with Paul evidently must have heard a sound, but they didn't understand it, nor did they see anyone. So they see Paul, or they see Saul talking to somebody, but they don't see nobody. Right? So what we see then, we see that Saul is led by the hand, right? Which means that Saul is both blind and he's been humiliated. Because apparently he now thinks, apparently these people now think he's cuckoo. Because he's talking to somebody that we don't see, he's answering voices that we don't hear, and only crazy people do that. So little is said of three days that followed, 
or of what Sean was thinking or of what he was doing. So since we know that he fasted, right, this was likely a period of mourning for him, perhaps in a falling in tents, repentance for opposing God and God's people. But you see, he's already politely submitted to God. Now through this three-day fasting period where he is blind, he can't see anything, he can't do anything for himself. All he has time to do, all he is able to do, is think about what he has done and think about the fact that the person he has been doing this to, God, has met him on the road to Damascus, and rather than killing him, he's blinded him and given him an opportunity to change his ways. So in other words, rather than showing, rather than taking vengeance on Saul, God has shown him mercy. God has shown him grace. Right? So we do know that at some point in time he saw a vision. We're going to see that in the next section, in verse 12, more specifically. And was expecting a man named Ananias to come lay hands on him. We also know that it was at this point in time that his new mission was disclosed to him while he was still blinded. So we read about that in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. So now we're going to pick up in verse 10, and we're going to go through verse 14, which says this, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So what do we see here, right? We see that God, that God goes to Ananias while he was in prayer. And he tells him to go and visit Saul over on Straight Street. Right? But what we're seeing is that Ananias is understandably hesitant about doing this. And as you see, Saul's reputation preceded him. So what do we mean by that, right? So, so what's really going on in Ananias' mind, right? As you see, what Ananias is thinking is that for me to go to Saul is extremely risky. Because I would be putting my own life at risk to meet with this man whose stated purpose is to arrest everyone who follows the way, to arrest everyone who is a follower of Jesus, to arrest everyone who is a believer in Jesus. 
so they can be taken back to Jerusalem, thrown in prison, put on trial, and then quite possibly be executed, just as Stephen was executed illegally. Right? So we then see that Jesus' that Jesus gives him more than not only that we are assured Ananias that hey, I know what I'm doing. I know what has happened to this man. You go do what I tell you. But he also tells us about Paul. He also tells Ananias about Paul's coming mission to the Gentiles. Right? That's what we're going to see. So we're going to pick up now in verse uh, 15. We're going to go through verse 19a. So it says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So what we see here is that Paul was Christ's chosen instrument for the purpose of bearing witness to the Gentiles, the kings, and to the people of Israel, and he was uh, to bear. He was to have. He was, he was going to suffer for the name of Jesus. So essentially, Paul's high calling came with a high price. And we see that Ananias called Saul his brother, which tells us that Saul had become a follower of Christ, and he had become a follower of Christ before Ananias arrived, and he had probably been a follower of Christ since he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so after Ananias laid his hands on him, after Ananias laid his hands on Saul and prayed for him, we see that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, restoring his sight. And we then see that Saul took the first step that we are all called to take, as our first step of obedience is followed to Christ, and that first step is baptism. And after he was baptized, he ate something. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 19b, and we're going to take it through verse 31, which is going to be a continuation of this introduction that we have of a man named Saul, whom we all know as Paul. So we have just seen Saul slash Paul become a follower of Christ. And so as we move into this section of of Acts chapter 9, which is one of the more important sections of Acts chapter 9, outside of Saul's conversion, we are going to see the results of this massive change that has come over Saul slash Paul. 
if I just see prior to this chapter, prior to Acts chapter 9, right? Saul slash Paul had been the leading persecutor of the early church. Right? And so now as we come into the middle section, Acts chapter 9, we see Paul do a complete we see Paul make a complete change in directions, seemingly overnight, and begin not persecuting the church, but instead helping to spread its messages, message in the synagogues, which led to confusion and disbelief among the early church. And ultimately, what we're going to see happen is we're going to see that the death threats were made against Saul slash Paul, and that there were even overt attempts to kill him, which led the leaders of the early church to send Saul slash Paul back home to Tarsus so that the situation that had been, that had occurred, that the situation that had arose could cool down a little bit. So now we're going to pick up in verse 19b, right, verse 19b, and we're going to take it through verse 25, which says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So what we see here is that this man, Saul slash Paul, immediately began preaching the gospel in Damascus. And what you should know about that, what we should really understand about that, is that his training as a rabbi had prepared him greatly for this mission. He amazed the faithful and he confounded his opponents. And what was the message that he was preaching? What was the message he was giving? The message he was giving was that Jesus is the Son of God, and not only is he the Son of God, but he is also the Messiah. Right? And so we see that many days passed. We're told that many days passed. So, which possibly totaled a year or two. And it's during this time that Paul's letter to the church in to the churches in Galatia more specifically over in Galatians chapter 1 verse 17 or told of a mission to uh, Arabia that would be at this time the Nabataean kingdom of Artius the fourth which was 
east of the Jordan, of which Damascus was a part. So now let's talk about this escaping a basket, right? Because remember I said there were death threats against Saul? Slash Paul, and there were even overt attempts to kill him. We haven't got to the overt attempts to kill him yet. This is just the death threats that he got. We're gonna kill you. If we catch you, we're gonna kill you. These are the death threats. And so how does Paul escape these death threats, right? <coughs> he escapes them in a basket. That is also mentioned over in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses thirty-two through thirty-three. So in that passage over in Second Corinthians, we're told it was the governor under King Artius the Fourth who was the instigator of all this trouble. But here, in Acts, it was the Jews who were plotting against him. So, regardless of which one it was, both the king's governor and the synagogue rulers had a common irritant. And the common irritant was Saul slash Paul, the, the Christ follower. So now let's talk about this opening in the wall, right? So this opening the wall, and we see in Acts chapter 9 verse 25, it's called a window in Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 33 which would essentially be more like a square space in a wall than a modern window. So it would be a square opening in a wall, right, that would let in a little bit of air and let in a little bit of light. It would not have, may or may not have had any, probably didn't have any glass on it, may or may not have had any coverings over it, it may have had some shutters that you could pull shut to keep the weather out. But it was essentially just a hole in the wall that Paul goes out in order to escape from these people who want to kill him. So now we're going to pick up in verse 26 and we're going to take it through verse 31. Which says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him. And now in Damas and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So what we're going to see here is that uh, Saul, otherwise known as Paul, had previously persecuted Jerusalem churches. So their suspicion of him was highly justified. 
you would be suspicious of somebody too if all of a sudden they became your biggest supporter when prior to that they had been your biggest persecutor. Understand that. So we see here that this man named Barnabas who was introduced in Acts chapter 4 verse 36 as a generous believer, right? Is now here as an advocate of Saul, otherwise known as Paul, before the apostles. And we see that Saul, also known as Paul, is accompanying the apostles in their evangelistic activities. In verse 28, who seem to be particularly focused on the Hellenistic or the Greek speaking Jews. But but this group of people wanted to kill him. And so this threat to Saul, otherwise uh, Saul, who was later on as Paul, is ironic in that the Hellenistic Jews wanted to do to Saul what he had been doing in Jerusalem. And we then see that he was sent home to Tarsus, and that he remained there for a few years until one of us brought him back to Antioch. And that occurs over in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. And so we see in that very last verse, which is verse 31, this reference to the church in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee as a reminder that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 had prepared the disciples to be witnesses in these areas on the way to the ends of the earth. So the believers enjoyed peace, they enjoyed edification, they enjoyed progress, they even enjoyed comfort, and they enjoyed increase. But all of these things were only possible through living in the fear of the Lord and the and being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. So what we should notice about that now, let's talk about that just a little bit as our way of concluding this section of the book of Acts. So we should notice that Luke focuses on the need to fear God both in his gospel and in his companion book Acts. That's what we need to understand. Now let's talk about what God, what God-fearing people, and and why they are so, of such great importance. Right, so God-fearing people were the starting point for the church's mission to take Christ's message beyond the Jews and into other cultures. Right, in fact, living in fear of the Lord is in a large is a larger part. The reason that the church grew so large in numbers at this point in time. Because to fear God is to experience extreme awe and to experience extreme reverence for God's unlimited power and authority. It inspires an awareness. It also inspires an awareness of our accountability to God as the supreme life giver and the supreme Judge. The fear of the Lord produces trust and obedience and helps us avoid evil and anything that would displease God. This response in turn results in encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Right? So when we fear God, 
another one for me. Show him extreme awe. I mean, show him reverence for his unlimited power and his unlimited authority. Right? We are encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pick up tomorrow with a continuation. We're going to pick up tomorrow there. So we're going to pick up tomorrow there. Right? So, excuse me. So what we're going to pick up with tomorrow is is a continuation of the story of Peter. So we're going to turn our attention once again to Peter tomorrow. That would be July the 23rd. So what you need to read to be prepared to discuss that, you need to read Second Chronicles chapter 8 verse 11 through chapter 10 verse 19. You need to read Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 25, Psalm 18 verses 16 through 36, and Proverbs 19, 26. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners, <coughs> and welcome to Through the Bible in One Year. So we're going to be covering today days 204 through day, day, day 204 through day 206, excuse me. <coughs> so just a brief reminder what you need to have read prior to listening to or reading <coughs> these discussions if you are reading them at upstatechristian.com you need to have read on day 204 which would have been July the 23rd or Saturday you need to have read Second Chronicles chapter 8 Verses 11 through 18, Second Chronicles 9 and Second Chronicles 10. Then you need to have read Romans 8 verses 9 through 25, Psalm 18 verses 16 through 36, and Proverbs 19 verse 26. So that's Saturday. So your assignment for Sunday, which would have been 205, day 205, which would also be the 24th of July, <coughs> you need to read Second Chronicles chapters 11, 12, and 13, Romans 8, 26 to 39, Psalm 18, 37 to 50, and Proverbs 19, 27 through <coughs> 29, and then for today, which will be day 206, which by the way is July the 25th, you need to read the Second Chronicles 14, 15, and 16, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 24, Psalm 19, 1 through 14, <coughs> and Proverbs 20, Verse 1. So now let's pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 9. <coughs> so what we're going to be starting with is Acts chapter 9, 
verses 32 through 43, and we're going to be going through Acts chapter 10, verse 23, part A. <coughs> so where we left off in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, we had just seen the conversion of the man named Saul, who would later be known as Paul, <coughs> and the events that surrounded that. So when we get to the 11 verses that end chapter 9, they introduce us <coughs> to a much larger and more important section. It begins in Acts chapter 10, it runs all the way through Acts chapter 11, verse 18. So in this short section at the end of Acts chapter 9, we pick up the story of Peter once again. <coughs> so in this short section, we're going to see Peter moving from Jerusalem through the Judean countryside until he reaches the Mediterranean coast. So as Peter traveled, so I'm going to pick up, so I'm going to pick up now, next chapter 9, verse 32, and we're going to go through verse 35, <coughs> which says, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydia. <coughs> There he found a man named Ananias who was paralyzed and had been bedridden <coughs> for eight years. Ananias Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Ananias got up, and all those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. <coughs> This man named Ananias is a Greek name. It's likely that this story is included to introduce Peter's powerful ministry in Lydia and to prepare us for the account of the conversion of the Gentiles that we will see as we move into Acts chapter 10. So we should also note this area of Judea that Peter was traveling through was heavily Jewish. In other words, there was a large Jewish population, but there was also a sizable <coughs> non-Jewish or Gentile population as well. So now let's pick up in verse 36 and go through verse 38, which says, In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. <coughs> Lydia was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydia, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Let's talk about where Joppa was located. So Joppa was on the coast, northwest of Lydia, 
and was the main port for the Roman colony of or the Roman province of Judea, excuse me. So Tabitha, this lady's name, when translated into Greek as Dorcas, is translated into Greek as Dorcas, right? So what exactly does that mean? Why would you call somebody such a funky name? So this name actually means gazelle. And so the mention of her name, both in Hebrew Aramaic and Greek, is again preparing us for the Gentile conversion that we're going to see as we move into Acts chapter 10. So what we need to understand is that Dorcas was a woman memorialized for her kind and generous character. And that families in antiquity took care of the dead bodies and the funeral arrangements. And so it was customary to wash and anoint the body. And that while all this was going on, we see that two men were sent to call Peter. So now we're going to read through verses 39 through 43, <coughs> which says, Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the, wid- all the widows stood around him, trying and showing him the robes, or the clothing that Dorcas had made, while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. <coughs> so, given the fact that Peter's signs and ministry had become so well known, it's no wonder that Tabitha or Dorcas's friends and families called for him, because they were hoping for God's intervention here as well. So the grieving old widows showed Peter clothing that Dorcas had made for them. And they were quite likely wearing as a sign they deeply respected her. And so you see, her Christian character is seen in her ministry or in her reaching out to and her providing for and caring for these widows. So now we're going to see in these last three verses that we read, right? <coughs> and that the case of divine healing can be attributed to an individual Christian, right? So what exactly does that mean? So what we're seeing here is that What's going on here right, is that Ananias had been healed because Christ had commanded her, commanded it. And in this case, Peter sought the will of God in prayer before calling on Dorcas to arise. So the apostles were absolutely clear, right? That 
empty planet. There's no healing or a sign. Came because they were particularly special, or because they were specifically inspe uh, were particularly powerful. So the result of this, the result of the fact that Peter sought the will of God in prayer before calling for darkness to arise, and that God answered Peter's prayer, was that many in Joppa believed. And so we were told that Peter stayed with a man in Joppa by the name of Simon, who was a tanner, which is someone who treated animal skins for a leather and was therefore considered an outsider because of the smell associated with tanning and also because he was a man that handled dead bodies was therefore considered to be ceremonially unclean as we're going to find out as we move through this so now we're gonna move into Acts chapter 10, right? So we just left Peter in Joppa as he was staying with a man named Simon who was a tanner. He was a leather worker who made leather goods. And so while it might seem to just a casual read through the first eight verses or so of Acts chapter 10, right? We have left Peter in Joppa with Simon the Tanner for a little while. But as we're going to see as we go through Acts chapter 10, we're actually coming to one of the most important days outside of Pentecost in the conversion of Paul, events in the early days of the church. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see the gospel message being taken for the first time to a group of Gentiles or non-Jewish people. And we're going to see this story, these events circulate around a man named Cornelius in a uh, story circulates around a Roman by the name of Cornelius. So now let's Jump right in, we're going to start in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and go through the first two verses at first, right? So it says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So let's break this down because we got to understand what's happening here in these first two introductory verses before we can ever get into the rest of what's going to happen in Acts chapter 10, right? So the Caesarea that we're talking about here is Caesarea Montina, or Caesarea on the Sea, which is not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, is discussed in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Right, so this settlement was once called Strato's Tower, so, but Herod the Great had expanded it, and what a mass 
power complex there, which is described in detail by the Jewish historian Josephus, and astonishingly it's been confirmed by archaeological evidence. So at this point in time, it was the seat of Judea's Roman governor, right? It was the seat of Judea's Roman governor, and the within this city slid some 4,000 and had other features of Greek cities but was divided between the dominant Syrian Gentile population and Jewish residents and so trouble often erupted between these segments with the Syrian soldiers stationed there siding with the Syrian residents and the in AD 66, Josephus, again, that's the Jewish historian, right? It esti- estimates that 20,000 Jews were slaughtered in a single wave of genocide. Some other Gentiles, however, were drawn to Judaism, which is what we see here with this man named Cornelius. We see as a he is called a centurion, right? So what we need to understand now about the Roman military presence in <coughs> Judea, right? So Judea's governor, maybe his Judea's Roman governor, had five auxiliary infantry cohorts and a cavalry unit, right? So he had the Roman legion that was there to help support him, but he also had these auxiliary infantry cohorts and a so these auxiliaries that unlike the legionnaires of the Roman military were not Roman citizens. So they were local Syrian recruits, many based in the area around Caesarea, but who would achieve Roman citizenship when they retired. So now let's talk about centurions. So centurions commanded centuries units of about 80 men, right? So the traditional, or the paper strength of a century, century, excuse me, is one would obviously guess was a hundred soldiers. That was a hundred legionaries, not a hundred auxiliaries, right? So, however, more often than not, in fact, in most cases, in about 80 to 90 percent of the cases, even closer to 95% of the cases, a century contained fewer soldiers than this due to recruitment problems, problems, things like that. The same sort of problems that would plague, that plague our military today. So we need to understand about centurions and some are aristocrats, but most were common soldiers who had climbed their way through the ranks sometimes over as long as 20 years. So by the time most centurions became centurions, it was about time for them to retire. So now let's deal with the uh, last half of verse 1, which tells us that Cornelius was a member of the Italian regiment. So what that means is that means he was in a cohort one-tenth of a legion, with as many as six hundred.
Japanese cohort was stationed in South Korea with the 6th in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem. So cohorts could take their names from the cohort's original location. So there is no reason to expect that, that the current cohort is Italian rather than as was usual in this region, largely Syrian. So given the fact that uh, given Cornelius' name, he is probably already a citizen, whether as a retired centurion, or perhaps more likely as a citizen lent for this supervisory role from the region. So he was probably a member <coughs> of the Roman, actual Roman legion that was supposed to be stationed in Judea. That the governor would have a call for an actual Roman legion that had been sent <coughs> to Judea to help supervise, or to provide some supervision to Syrian members, the local members of this, descendant of this supporting staff, right, that the governor had at his beck and call to give a little bit of professionalism within the ranks of this, it would have been like a national guard or a reserve unit, even though they served full time. <coughs> well, you are going with this, right? So, so Cornelius was probably a so we need to understand that in this period, young men usually enlisted around age 17 and served for 20 years. So in difficult areas on the border of the empire. So in so excuse me, so in difficult areas on the borders of the empire, an average, an average, understand this, an average of half estimated to have survived, but the proportion of survivors was likely higher around Caesarea because they weren't um, in the difficult areas on the border of the empire. They were in a relatively secure area in the heart of the empire, right? So we also need to understand that marriage was not officially permitted, but having an unofficial concubine or an unofficial mistress was common. So during the typical 20-year span of military service, as we already said, soldiers were generally pro officially prohibited from marrying. However, officers would usually look the other way at liaisons between soldiers and local women, and the Roman government would usually recognize these unions as being official marriages. <coughs> these soldiers retired. So most Roman soldiers stayed stationed in particular areas and were unhappy to be moved. But alternatively, they could marry on a retirement. So now let's talk about this idea of family, right? So it says his family, right? Got all his family. So now we've kind of covered the fact that we're going to include his his unofficial wife and then therefore his unofficial 
children. But this term thing by ancient definition could also include servants. Though Cornelius has relatives in the more specific sense. We're now we're talking about probably his wife. We're probably talking about his children. Right? So those are the things that we're talking about there. So now let's deal with the last part of that, right? So we're told he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. Yea, generous in foes and mean, and prayed to God regularly. So what we need to understand about that is that a God-fearer was a Gentile who believed in God, but had not been circumcised to become a Jew. So in other words, he feared God, he worshipped the same God that the Jews did, but he had not gone through the last step to become a, a true So the depiction that we get here of Cornelius describes his piety in terms of his generosity to the poor and continual prayer. So these are two of the three activities that are known as pillars of Judaism, with the third being fasting. And there is no reason for us to suggest that Cornelius did not regulate fast as well, since we already know that he was, uh, that he gave generously to those in need, and that he prayed to God regularly. So now let's take this starting in verse 3, going through verse 8. So here's what that says. It says, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. So the Hebrew here being Cornelius. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And the angel spoke to him. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So the time that we see here mentioned, right, it says one day at about three in the afternoon, right, this time was the time of prayer at the temple in Jerusalem. So what we need to understand here is that Cornelius' vision was not a dream. Cornelius was not asleep when this happened. Cornelius was not out of his mind when this happened. What Cornelius saw was literally an angel of God speaking to him. Right? And so upon seeing this angel, Cornelius became 
military superior, not his earthly superior, but his heavenly superior. And so there is, again, that moment, so let's look exactly clear. So there is no indication of any attribution of deity. He just felt this person was superior to him, was next in in line ahead of him was this figure was not God, but he was a representative of God. So this angel's commands were obeyed immediately. Right? Because you see what the angel said to him, right? Your your prayers give to the poor covers of one offering before God. Now here's the command. He says, Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Right? And so here's what verses uh, 7 and 8 says. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants, told them everything that had happened, and sent them to Joppa. So the angel's command, which was to send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who was called Peter. Right, so the, these commands are obeyed immediately, right, because Cornelius sent two servants to Joppa under the escort of a devout soldier who was another God-fearer. Right, so now we're going to see now we're going to pick up with what is happening here in verses 9 through 23a when we see Peter getting to see these messengers who come from Peter, right? So now we're seeing Peter re-enter the action after he was absent from the first eight verses. Now Peter's going to be present for the entire rest of this story, right? So what we're going to see here more specifically is we're going to see Peter being shown a vision while he is praying that is going to completely change the course of church history. Now, as we will see, right, as we read through this, Peter's vision shows him that God is going to accept the Gentiles or the non-Jewish just as they are, without any prerequisites. So now let's pick up in verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 16, which says this, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice 
spoke to him a second time. We do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately she was taken back to heaven. Right? So when you understand what's happening here, like the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the scriptures, has revealed the New Testament Christians were people devoted to prayer. It's what we see here. Peter was praying when this happened. So they understood that God's kingdom could not be revealed or experienced in its full power in just a few minutes of prayer each day. So what we know is that we often found Jews pray two or three times a day. And it was the custom of Christians, especially the leaders among them, to pray with the same devotion. So we know that Peter and John went up in the temple at the time of prayer, and we also know that Paul and Luke did the exact same thing. We know that Peter prayed regularly at noon. And we also are going to see that God is going to reward Cornelius for being faithful and keeping his prayer Christians to be faithful in prayer, to pray always, to pray continually, to pray everywhere, to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer, to persevere in prayer, and to pray powerfully. And again, there can be no effective spiritual power in our battle against sin, Satan, and the evil in the world, nor will we have victory in our efforts to reach without consistent daily prayer. So now let's consider Jesus' urgent request on the night that he was arrested, which was that his disciples watch and pray at least one hour. And now let's consider the urgency of the end times in which we live, right? So would it not be pleasing to God for each of us as Christ followers to commit to a consistent time of prayer and of and to the and a, to commit to a consistent time to study to the consistent time of to, to study God's word daily. So this this time this time will certainly help us to better understand and fulfill God's purposes and advance his kingdom on earth. So so remember, so Jesus said, pray. So when Jesus took his disciples, remember, took Peter, and took Peter, James, and John with him, right? And he took those three with him, right? What does it say? He said, pray me for instant hour. So let's consider what one hour of prayer might include. So it might include some of these things. It might include verbal praise. It might include singing to the Lord. It might include thanksgiving. It might include waiting on God. It might include reading the Word. It might include listening to the Holy Spirit. It may include praying words directly from the Bible. It may include confessing thoughts and feelings, praying for others, making requests for one's own need, or even praying in tongues. So we know that Peter's time of prayer the next day was at noon. And we know that Peter's prayer happened while the servants were approaching Joppa. 
specific position was of a sheet containing animals that the Jewish people were not allowed to eat. It was full of things that were not kosher. And it violated the Jewish dietary laws. And so Peter's kosher diet, he was honoring God with the traditions that had been handed down to him by his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents and everyone that had come before him. However, in the new covenant, right, dietary regulations are a matter of freedom and are voluntary, not mandatory. And so the Lord's words here an affirmation to that. They make this clear. And when it says there's never called anything in here that God has made clean. God has made these things clean. So they're not impure. It's your choice to eat them or not. But if they're not something that I have specifically said you can't eat. No. So what we now see that people hesitate again, and that the Lord then reaffirms it to him, right? So we see this happen two more times, right? We don't see it happen, but we see it, a record of it happen, right? Because it says this happened three times, and immediately she was taken back to heaven, right? So we know, so we know that previously, right, in Luke 9, 43, that Peter was staying at a tanner's house, so this man regularly touched dead bodies, which made him ceremonially unclean. So since we see Peter here referring to food, we can't say that he was being a hypocrite, but we can't say that perhaps he was being a little bit selective in the rules and regulations that he chose to abide by. So he's not going to eat the things that are unclean, things that are not with the man who handles dead bodies on a regular basis and was making him ceremonially unclean. So the point that is trying to be made to Peter here is that Christ was accepting the Gentiles into the new covenant without placing them under the old covenant first. As you see, the Gentiles came to Christ as Gentiles, not taking on Judaism as a and as we get into Paul's letters, we're going to discuss that in great detail. And so what Peter was being shown here was, what Peter was being shown was being shown powerfully what God's will was. Right? So now we're going to pick up in verse 17, and we're going to take this verse 23, part A, right? So here's what that says. It says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go 
exclusive right to receive or to pass on. I guess that God's gift was now offered freely to people of all nations, and it was the Holy Spirit that revealed this broader vision to the church. And in Acts, He, the Holy Spirit, is the power behind the mission to take the message to the rest of the world. And He was now directing the church to new areas of ministry, and the outpouring of the Spirit, and a passion for missions, which is the taking of Christ's message to people of other nations, lands, and cultures, always go together. We just meet today, many of us who were across those followers of Christ to express a desire for people in our communities to know Christ. Yet we have not fully grasped or taken part in the Holy Spirit's purpose to send the message to peoples throughout the world. And so that is where we're going to pick up tomorrow as we conclude Acts chapter 10. And so what you need to read to be prepared for that is you need to read Second Chronicles 17 and 18. You need to read Romans chapter 9 verse 25 through chapter 10 verse 30. 